it's really in my DNA to hug people, to be affectionate, to reach out and take their hand. We couldn't do that with any of the people that we interviewed. It's against the detention facility policy. From UW Tacoma, this is Pot Defiance. Hello everyone and welcome to Pot Defiance, where we don't lecture but we do educate. I'm Maria Chrysostomo. Today we're talking with UW Tacoma professor Marian Harris and Zia Mendoza, a graduate student in the Master of Social Work program here at UWT. Zia and Dr. Harris spent a week at the South Texas Family Residential Center in Daly, Texas. There they provided social services to women and children housed at the immigrant detention facility. Dr. Marian Harris, Sea Mendoza, thank you for joining us. I'm Marian Harris, mm-hmm. and I'm a professor of social work at the University of Washington, Tacoma. I'm Sea Mendoza. I'm a student at the uh, Master's in Social Work at the University of Washington, Tacoma. Why did you decide to make this trip to the detention facility? I decided to volunteer and go to Dilly, Texas um, to work with the CARA project, which is a pro bono project, because, frankly, I was tired of the rhetoric that was coming from this administration regarding immigrants. And I got invited by Dr. Harris, and when... She told me, hey, are you willing to go to Texas? I accepted right away because I've been following the news, you know, since uh, I think uh, last year, you know, when we started hearing about family separation and all these uh, zero tolerance policies. That's when I became very concerned about the situation that uh, immigrants are facing, you know, down there at the border. And when I got the invitation from Dr. Harris, I was like, uh, yes, I'm going with you. <laughs> <laughs> so what work did you do over there? Um, during our time there, um, I actually um, got to do psychologicals. And in order to do those, uh, one has to be licensed as an independent clinical social worker. And I'm licensed uh, here in Washington State and in two other states. But we also did um, interviewing and preparation of mothers for their credible fear hearings. And this is a hearing where the hearing officer or judge decides if an individual can stay in this country and seek asylum. Basically, we were helping uh, the clients that we chose from the list to prepare for the credible fear interview, uh, which uh, it is... uh, a situation where uh, these women have to describe uh, why they left their countries, why uh, they were persecuted, and why they didn't get help from their, you know, uh, governments, and why they are afraid to come back. 
And uh, basically, these women are so traumatized and their stories are so long and so complex that they are, sometimes they are not able to articulate all these facts in a logical order. And the only way that uh, they can, you know, make sense to their own stories is with the help of volunteers. So our job was to help them um, uh, to prepare for this interview just by listening to their stories and highlighting the areas that can be important for the uh, court hearing. And uh, this project is processing around 500 women a week. So basically it is... Uh, the job is to prepare one client every two hours in average, which is kind of a challenge because their stories are so long and so complex that sometimes it, it requires more time. But that's kind of the situation that we, you know, faced over there at, this, at the detention center. How to... Uh, prepare, you know, as many women as we could, you know, with that limited uh, time. So when you were there, what are some of the things that you were experiencing? Our first um, interview that we um, did together, uh, after the interview, I broke down and cried. And the reason was it basically traumatized me. I was very upset. Um, after listening uh, to the mother um, that Zay and I interviewed, she told us her story of um, coming uh, from a country uh, in Central America to um, our country and all of the difficulty that she had prior to arriving at the family residential facility in Dili. She told us about being caged, literally, with 29 other people, men and women and little children uh, caged together for four days without food, without water. And that, to me, was just devastating. Having been uh, born and reared in this country, mm-hmm. It was just very hard for me to imagine that human beings could do that to another human being, to deny anyone food or water. And we have lots of food and water in this country, including at the border. And to deny a child a drink of water, that to me is just inhumane. Well, this, you know, I experienced uh, the same kind of uh, secondary trauma uh, because, uh, you know, hearing all these stories is very impacting. And as an interpreter, you know, uh, the these mothers were talking to me and looking at me because uh, they knew that I was the one that could understand their language. And uh, as I shared with Dr. Harris uh, uh, later, I felt like I was getting 
most of the trauma directly, you know, directed to me because they were crying and looking at me and I was receiving all these feelings and then my job was translated, you know, into a different language and put it in English and and try to find the words that can describe, the, you know, their situations in in a different language, which is complicated. So uh, it, it took a toll on me. It, at the end of the day, it was hard to sleep and it was hard to, you know, uh, take all these feelings and thoughts out of my mind, you know, to be able to sleep. It was very hard because the, the stories are very impacting, very traumatizing. And listening these stories from the mouth of the mother with the children present and the children were actually uh, supporting that story or kind of jumping, yes, that what happened and these other things happened. And do you remember, mom, when all these other things happened? And it's, it, is, it is very hard to hear it, not just from the mom, but also from the children. And uh, and the language, you know, has that emotional connection that was, you know, transmitted to me as an interpreter, and it was very, very hard for me too. So, how was your first experience, like walking the first day into the center? Can you describe that? I can describe the f my first experience, and I led you, Doctor Harris, to do it, but. I still have it fresh in my mind, you know, going through security and after all the electronics and all the stuff is being, you know, inspected and taken out because we cannot take any recording devices or any kind of uh, picture, uh, cameras or cell phones. And then uh, uh, we are, you know, we were directed to this big, big room where all the women were waiting for us as their only option, their only help that they could get. And as soon as the doors were open, I just saw a lot, a lot of women there uh, dressed with you know, the uh, sweatpants and bright yellow uh, hoodies because that's the only clothes that uh, the facility provides them. And children uh, having these tags uh, around their necks uh, with numbers, uh, and as they are supposed to wear those tags, and uh, just in groups, you know, waiting for the nine appointment or the twelve appointment or the one appointment in big, big groups. So, I think. Uh, for every appointment, we saw probably more than 50, 100 women waiting, probably. Mm -hmm. So you had about 50 people to see every day. Yes. And there were a list of uh, uh, cases and names uh, posted in, in in that big room. And it was just about, as a volunteer, it was just about to choose, you know, your client. And he, I remember looking at all those names and having to choose a client, it, it was hard because I wanted to get everybody. Mm -hmm. yeah, but knowing that I was going to be helping just one at a time was hard. So do you just 
choose or you know yes. did it just come up to you or do is there a list it was a list and i chose names and those were the names that we helped there is a list um however um the afternoon of the first day um i was asked if i would do a psychological the next day and i said yes and this was a special case Um, it was a woman uh, who had gone before the judge two times, and he had denied uh, her uh, requests to seek asylum both times. And so I knew that what I wrote uh, in my psychological, her life depended on it. So I want to go back to the psychological that you were mm -hmm. talking about. What was the turnout? Um, it was a very positive turnout. Um, as I stated, um, this woman had gone um, to court twice and received a negative ruling uh, in her request to seek asylum. And I asked Cindy, the attorney who was representing her, to please let Zaya and I know the um, decision of the judge. And we left. Uh, we were there for a week. Uh, we left on Saturday to come back here. And the hearing was going to be on Monday, uh, following that Monday after we got back. Otherwise, I would have gone to the hearing if it had been during the week that we were there. And I was sitting at my desk and um, turned my computer on. And there was an email um, stating, thank you, thank you. Uh, the judge uh, read the first narrative page of your psychological and stated that he did not need to read anymore. And he gave a positive ruling. And I have to say, I was by myself in my office and I cried. Because for me, it meant that I had changed somebody's life in a positive way. And that's what social work is all about. But I wanted to um, tell you about how I felt when I first entered the detention center. Um, I had been uh, in the past to prisons for women and for men. And I thought that we were actually um, going to go to a building. Uh, instead, it was a trailer. And we walked in, and I had my laptop. I had a notepad, uh, a couple of pens, and I think that's it, uh, in my briefcase. And I had to take that out. Because the only way you could uh, enter the facility with things uh, still in a backpack or a briefcase, it had to be plastic and see-through. And my briefcase is a brown leather briefcase. And so I took all of my belongings out, um, walked through uh, the metal detector, And, of course, uh, my boots set it off, and so they had to scan my body. 
And then we had to sign in, uh, pick up our belongings, and then we entered the room where all of the women and their children were. And frankly, it was overwhelming when I walked in and I saw all these women and all of these children. In addition to that, um, our week there was very unusual. They had more volunteers than they've ever had. Uh, in addition to us, we were part of a group of volunteers. We partnered with uh, social work faculty and students from UCLA uh, and uh, law faculty and students. But there were also a group of volunteers from Microsoft. They were not social workers or psychologists, but they were Spanish-speaking. And so that group was there. Um, there was a group from another school, um, a part of the group that we were with. Um, I remember uh, there was an attorney from New York. Uh, there were two attorneys from Kentucky. And so they had quite a few volunteers. Dr. Harris and Zia Mendoza traveled with a group from UW, UW Tacoma, and UCLA to the South Texas Family Residential Center in Dilly, Texas. They volunteer as part of the CARA Family Detention Pro Bono Project, which provides legal assistance to women and children held at the facility. Dr. Harris and Zia were in Dilly from February 17th to February 22nd of this year. Why did you choose social work? Well, uh, I decided to be a social worker because I'm a migrant. I'm an immigrant by myself, and uh, I came to this country, you know, for kind of the same reasons that all these women. I wanted to have a better life for me, for my children, and I want. I wanted to make a difference for other people, and uh, social work uh, seemed like the a best option for me because that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to help people. And once uh, I started the program, uh, I found out that, you know, uh, some areas really, really need help and some other ones, a lot of people, you know, are getting help already. Uh, in terms of immigration, that's in my personal opinion, is the area that is being most neglected. And there's so much to do. And I don't know if uh, maybe in the last two or three years is getting more attention, but it's being neglected by every, you know, uh, professional, not just social workers. And uh, as soon as I uh, get invited to this project, I, it seemed right to me that it was a perfect opportunity for uh, to get some help to, you know, these immigrants that really, really need it. And if there's no volunteers around, they wouldn't have any chance and they would be sent back to their countries. Can you describe your everyday life in mm -hmm. there, in the center? How was that? Um, the day started usually around 8.30, um, we arrived, uh, we would go through security, and the day was planned out. Um, for example, uh, as I stated, uh, I was asked to do the psychological on uh, Monday afternoon, 
and Zaya and I waited there to actually meet the attorney who was requesting that um, I do the psychological. And we met with Cindy. Um, She briefed us a little about the case. And that was the first um, client that we saw on Tuesday. Um, It took me five hours to do that psychological. And one of the things that I was struck by was the fact that um, there was a toddler who accompanied the mother to this interview. And I asked Saya to ask this child if she wanted a break, if she wanted water, if she wanted snacks. This child said no. And what that said to me was how resilient this little girl was. She knew that it was important um, what was being said uh, during this interview. And she sat there. I mean, she smiled at me the entire time. And it's really in my DNA uh, to hug people, to be affectionate, um, to reach out and take their hand. We couldn't do that with any of the people that we interviewed. It's against the detention facility policy. If we had touched anyone, if we had hugged anyone, we would have been escorted out of the facility and not allowed to come back. There are cameras everywhere. They are watching and listening to everything that you do and everything that you say. And it's very difficult to be uh, interviewing a client and the client starts crying and not to reach out and comfort that person. I mean, it goes against social work values and social work principles. But we did what we had to do. The news that we see every day, is that how accurate it is in the center? Well, um, they don't have volunteers every day. And so uh, we don't really know uh, because we were not allowed outside of that trailer. Uh, One of the attorneys attempted to go out the back door because he, too, like me, wanted to see where the clients lived. I wanted to see the school. I wanted to see the preschool. And we were not allowed um, to see those things. In fact, they told us to look at pictures up on the wall. Someone had done some paintings when they first opened this detention facility. And I don't know because I couldn't go outside of the trailer, what it looks like. Uh, Even when you're standing uh, out in the parking lot, I tried to look around uh, because I wanted to see what was going on. Uh, Everything is covered up, literally. Wow. So so the volunteers never get to see that, only the people who weren't there. And I thought, You know, and they did background checks on us before we could um, go. Um, They did a background check on every volunteer. And I thought because I wasn't a student, because I 
him a professional and a professor that they would allow me to tour the facility. And I was actually told uh, by Cindy, the attorney um, that I worked with, that even the attorneys were not allowed to tour the facilities. So they have never seen, seen the actual residential facilities where clients live. I can say from talking to clients, they do have a bed to sleep on, um, and they didn't have a bed at the cage that I mentioned. They do have food to eat. They have snacks. Um, kids go to school. Yeah, the reason why I was asking that question is because mm-hmm. I've seen the news lately. And, I mean, mm-hmm. I don't know how much of that is so accurate. I've seen parts where there's kids who have, like, aluminum oil, um, aluminum foil on, you know, mm-hmm. it's covered. And, and that's that does not happen at the residential facility where we were. We were at the largest uh, family residential um, facility in the U.S. And the positive thing about that facility is that women and their children are not separated. All the children there are with their moms. And that's not the case at the um, facilities where uh, women, men, and children are caged. So can you describe more about the psychological that you do? Mm-hmm. Um, I was actually uh, assessing for post-traumatic stress syndrome, uh, which this mom and probably all of the moms, of course I didn't assess all moms, uh, but uh, it was very clear. Um, there are five different parts uh, to the psychological, and it asks a whole battery of questions. Um, everything from um, questions uh, regarding events that have traumatized you um, early on up to the present time, um, and just asking all of these questions, which are invasive. Uh, I mean, being interviewed for five hours. Uh, but for me, I forgot about the fact that it was going to take a long time. I was more focused on being very detailed because I knew that this was going to a judge and it was going to determine whether this mom and her child got to seek asylum in this country. And so I was very specific uh, in asking these questions and following up to make sure that I understood what the client uh, was saying to me. In addition to assessing for PTSD, I also assessed um, this mother's mental health status um, to make sure um if she had a mental illness, that I did diagnose that. And, of course, she was depressed, and rightfully so. I mean, who wouldn't be to leave your country of origin and come here and then be subjected to being literally caged up without food for four days? That would traumatize me. So I kind of want to go back to the question where you said that you had to pick and choose which clients you basically, you know, helped. How was that process like? 
It is heartbreaking because uh, knowing that uh, we were in the largest detention center of the country and the capacity is officially 2,400 women and children, but in reality we never know how many children, how many women are there. And, and knowing that we were there just to help a few of them because uh, they have no other option. There's nobody else that can go there and help them uh, as a pro bono services or volunteers. You know, their cases are depending on volunteers. And even when we uh, were part of a big group that week, uh, knowing that not all of them were going to get that help is really hard. And But at the end, we you know, chose some of them and we tried to really uh, uh, help them as much as we could instead mm -hmm. of getting too many that we couldn't help at all. So at least we got to uh, yes, help I some mean, of our them. Yes, I mean, um, and I, uh, Zaya, would go and look on the list and I let her select the clients that we were going to work with. Um, we were actually committed to literally doing everything that we possibly could for the clients that we worked with. And we made a commitment to two of the moms that we work with. Um, I actually gave them my business card stating that when you're released from this detention center, This is my name. This is my address at my job. Please contact me and I will help you. And we have actually heard from um, one of the women. And I actually uh, sent out last week a call to the UWT faculty, staff, and students for clothing and shoes um, for this woman and her children. They um, have been released from the detention center and uh, have relocated um, to Texas. Wow. A large city in Texas. Mm -hmm. That's great. And yeah. I'm actually going to go and visit them at the end of the quarter and connect them with social services in this city. Yeah. But it, um, I was talking to a colleague um, from the research uh, center uh, on our campus this morning. And she was saying that she was going to respond to my call for clothing and shoes for this family. And the question that she posed to me was, well, what about all of the other families who don't have someone like you? And they're just out there. Because can you imagine being in this country, you don't know anybody, and you don't speak English, and you don't have an advocate? So I want to touch base on your experiences now. You coming back, how, how, have you, how has it changed your life? I knew that when I um, went to Texas that... I was going to be traumatized. 
I did not know uh, what I would find there, uh, but I knew that I would be traumatized, and I was. And I, prior to going, I actually um, talked with a psychiatrist, and since I've been back, I've met with him. And I'm glad that I made a plan for myself. What about you? Well, since I came back, every time that I hear the news, I feel it very, very personal because uh, it, it is, it is, you know, where everything is being described in the news is happening. And it doesn't seem right that we are treating immigrants this way because they are asylum seekers and they are women and children that are already traumatized and very vulnerable. And being, you know, in custody, it doesn't seem right to me. It seems like it's not a, or is totally against the values of this country or what this country promotes. And uh, I, you know, uh, I try to stay away from every kind of politics or whatever, but just, you know, by the human side, you don't do this to another human and you don't do this kind of uh, atrocities to children and women that I, that are, they have suffered a lot already. And, you know, seeing them in custody, it, it is not what we are supposed to do. Mm-hmm. So how... Now that you come back are you, mm-hmm. and you're teaching again, mm-hmm. have you talked anything about your experiences in class? Uh, I actually um, have talked in generalities about my experiences. Um, we had a conference on our campus on March 27th that focused on children of incarcerated parents. And Zaya and I did the closing plenary about our experiences at the border. And we had one of the conference participants to come up to us after the conference saying, out of the whole conference, the one thing that was going to stick with us, with her, was um, our experience at the border. What can mm-hmm. we do? Is there something that, as, a, as Tacoma, we can do? I think that um, letting people in your professional circles and in your personal circles know that women and children have a right to seek asylum. Uh, These women and children who are seeking asylum are not murderers. They're not criminals. They're not drug dealers. They're not rapists. In fact, a large number of these mothers are sexual assault survivors because they themselves have been raped multiple times. And so dispelling some of the myths, and people are coming here seeking asylum uh, for a better life for themselves and their children. And moms don't want the awful things that have been perpetuated upon them to be perpetuated upon their children. And people need to know that. Hi, everyone. It's Maria. I wanted to talk with you about a project by Utah Tacoma Assistant Professors 
Rachel Hirschberg, and Lenisa Deverich Woodside. The project documents experiences of immigrants and refugees who've been detained at the Northwest Detention Center in Tacoma. Hirschberg and Deverich Woodside conducted interviews with people who have either been detained at the center or who traveled to the U.S. without documentation but received some form of legal status. The pair partnered with the Tacoma Community House, 8th Northwest, and World Relief Seattle. You can find out more by visiting the UW Tacoma website and typing Telling Their Stories into the search bar. Can you describe some of the things that you heard when you were in the center? Uh, one of the things that I heard uh, on my last day there uh, Zan and I had planned to, and we had, we had finished our work at 5 o'clock that Friday afternoon, and we were packing up our things and getting ready to leave. And uh, we were asked uh, by a colleague, uh, please talk to this woman. She needs to talk to somebody. And um, I noticed that she had an infant in her arms, and I'm not a medical doctor, but I knew that this baby was sick, and there was also a 10-year-old child who was with her. And uh, we put our stuff down, and uh, we proceeded to talk to her. And what she said to us was that the baby was sick, the baby had been ill all night, Um, The baby had a fever, and the baby really needed to see the doctor. And she had taken the baby um, to the doctor, to the clinic, um, that the night before, and had been given an ibuprofen to give the baby and a small little cup of Pedialyte. And she asked if we would call her family. And I asked Saya to ask her, uh, what does she want us to say to her family? And she said she wanted us to ask her family to send money in order for her to go to the store. And I asked Saya to ask her what store, because, you know, they're in a detention center. And I was trying to figure out what store is she talking about. And she thought, that there was a store on the grounds of the detention center. And so I asked Saya to go over to the desk to the guard to ask if there was a store uh, on the grounds. And the guard uh, told Saya to tell me no. And then my next response was to ask the guard if this woman... um, can see a doctor. This baby is sick. And the guard told Zaya to tell me that I should not be believing everything that I hear from clients, which goes against my training because social workers are taught to start where the client is. You believe the client unless you have some reason not to. Uh, but to make a long story short, Uh, What ended up happening was the guard realized that we were not going to leave until this baby was seen by a doctor. 
She picked up her phone, and Zaya could understand what she was saying because she was speaking in Spanish to the doctor, telling him that uh, this professor and uh, student are here, and they're not going to leave unless you see this baby. And the doctor agreed that he would see the baby. But my other issue about this is, if he knew that this child was that sick, why didn't he really do something proactive to help this baby? Thank you to our guests, and a big thank you to our senior lecturer, Nicole Blair, for letting us play your music on the show. Thank you to Moon Yard Recording Studio, and thank you for joining us today. Be sure to subscribe and go to iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and Pocket Casts.